I'm Sage. And I'm William. And this is Half, half as, as well, well, where we promise Tolkien lore half as much as you should like. Explained half as well as you deserve. This week we're doing something a little bit different. Uh, we're actually going to split this section into two different episodes. Uh, hopefully they'll be shorter than a regular episode, but we realized there's so much material in the section assigned that we just needed to, to split it up. Yeah, and that way we could really focus on the Tale of Baron and Luthien and Tale of Turin separately. So without further ado, let's just get right into it. All right, and given that the section we are choosing to talk about right now is only two chapters, and really the meat of it is Baron and Luthien, I'm just going to quickly recount uh, the Battle of Sudden Flame, which okay. opens that uh, first chapter of the Ruin of Beleriand. So we last left all of our elf kings and princes and their mortal allies encompassing Morgoth's kingdom in a siege. And we kind of had these 400 years of peace and kingdom building. But this all comes to an end one night when Morgoth sends forth rivers of fire and lava and armies of balrogs and orcs and even a dragon and they just pretty royally fuck up the north of Beleriand. yeah a bunch of bad shit goes down and it, it really puts our the characters kind of that we're we've been following um on edge <laughs> yeah and in crisis mode the status quo that we had kind of established in the previous episodes has now been totally turned upside down a couple of felagun's brothers get killed uh, Kelogorm and Kurufin, uh, two of the shittier sons of Feanor, flee. <laughs> uh, they're separated from their brothers, and they flee to their cousin, Felagund, in Nargothrond. Mm -hmm. Felagund is actually saved um, by the mortal Barahir of the House of Beor. But all in all, a lot of the Noldor die in this battle, known as the Battle of Sudden Flame. And Fingolfin feeling that all hope is lost, kind of charges uh, up to Angband's gate alone and fights Morgoth in single combat. And this is a pretty, like, fan-favorite scene of the whole Silmarillion. Um, yeah, it's exciting. I mean, it's always great. Uh, I think we get a lot of opportunities of just, like, solo missions throughout the Legendarium. Yeah, but this is one of the first times that we see Morgoth actually engaged in, like, physical combat. Mm -hmm. um, we see that he is not above fear. And he's not above even getting wounded at this point. Yeah, he's the only one of the Valar who can experience fear, which I think is a really interesting point made in this section, because we get a sense of sort of what he has exchanged for his dominion over Middle-earth and his, his physicality in that space. Yeah, I really like the idea of all these, uh, even these godlike beings all having finite power. Yeah. Uh, that... As the years go on, the more they spend, the less powerful they are. So they need to be really careful with where they spend their power. And the same with the Maiar as well, as we'll see with Sauron kind of going down that path of Morgoth's. Mm -hmm. And for Fingolfin, yeah, this is a pretty um, rash, maybe not all the way thought through deed, which is pretty unlike him. But um, we see he kind of has a little bit of that fieriness that his brother had. Yeah. <laughs> um, that led to Feanor's death. Right, exactly. But I think it's pretty wild, though, that uh, Feanor did the same thing, and Morgoth wouldn't come out. Yeah. And so he had to send his Balrogs, but uh, I don't know whatever Ethan Golfin said must have really triggered right. him. Uh, but yeah, he came out and fought. Or maybe he just feared Feanor more. Right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so this is the setting of Beleriand and the world as we enter the tale of Baron and Luthien which is the first of what Tolkien called his great tales. 
And these were the central core stories of his mythology that all the rest of it was built around. Right. So like most of what we've been reading of this book so far has just been like lead up. Exactly. Yeah. The stories of Baron and Luthien, the story of the children of Hurin or the tale of Turin and the fall of Gondolin are these three epic tales that are really about when these mortals become involved in the lives of uh, the elves and during the time of these great wars. And they're even mentioned, like, in Lord of the Rings. Like, Sam talks to Frodo on the stairs of Cirithungal, where he's like, do you think we'll ever be put into the great tales? And then he makes, like, the connection to this great tale of Baron and Luthien and the light of the Silmaril. So really, all the other Silmarillion was actually originally just this um, outline that Tolkien had written to provide further context to the great tales. Right. That in itself started to grow, and... I think the finished work is a still very profound, beautiful, and even poetic uh, historical narrative, but it was still an outline, which I think explains some of the dryness of the story. Yeah, I think that definitely helped contextualize this reading experience for me when, when you kind of explained that, you know, the great tales of this were poems and and they were meant to be poems and and that's sort of why there's so so many names and so many words for the same thing and and just kind of um a lot of like flowery language that seems ill-placed in a (laughs) dry historical document yeah or it's just names are being listed um but when you're thinking that these were meant to be uh spoken aloud in poetry and and song it makes a lot of more sense right um but yeah, so the Lay of Lathian is um, referenced throughout this work. Yes. Um, and even there are a few excerpts here and there. But I really do think that if you're just reading the Silmarillion and this chapter especially, you're missing most of like the meat of the story, which is in the poem version. And you can find that in the book known as The Lays of Beleriand, which also features the Lay of the Children of Hurin. But these poems were unfinished. Mm-hmm. The Lay of Lathian actually only goes up to the point where Karkaroth bites off Baron's hand. Okay. It's still like three quarters of the way full, so you get a lot of the story there. And so I would recommend to anyone that, like, when you reach this chapter, just read a passage or so and then read the poem up to that corresponding part. And then read that all the way through up until the end of the poem and then just finish out what's in the chapter. Because otherwise, I think you're missing out on a lot of description of these characters and these places, which are very magical and stuff. And when you're reading The Silmarillion, it can be kind of hard to picture these places like Doriath or Angband. You know, they're just these words on the page. But when you're reading The um, Lay of Lathian, he really gets into some pretty in-depth description that is just lacking. And... A lot of more dialogue too and so a lot of these scenes are just so much more fleshed out and I just couldn't recommend it enough um I think you're <laughs> just truly I know you've just been reading the Silmarillion yeah. but you are truly just reading a summarized version of the poem right yeah I, I think that's pretty clear in certain ways I think overall the Silmarillion t- to read it it does kind of require this commitment And at first it seems that's because of how the text is, that it's kind of, like, dense. Mm -hmm. No, in fact, it's because to actually, like, feel the Silmarillion, you have to have, like, multiple other books to kind of, like, actually get what is going on in it, Mm -hmm. uh, in, like, a visceral way. Yeah, and that's where I will recommend the History of Middle-Earth series. Um, The Lays of Balerion is part of that, but there's just a lot more other material there that uh, just 
brings this world more to life than just feeling like you're reading a history book. And I think that makes the reading of the Silmarillion enhanced. I mean, clearly um, it does, because yeah. you've read it a lot. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was thinking we would just uh, sum up generally what, you know, the tale of Baron and Luthien is about, and then kind of dive into, you know, our favorite scenes, our hot takes. Yeah, um, Baron and Luthien is a, a romantic tale. And I find that when Tolkien writes romance, it's like so romantic, like yeah. goofy, gooey, very touchy feely. Like it's very love at first sight. Yeah, and, uh, it's very, very magical. magical. <laughs> but even before we have Baron and Luthien meeting each other, we we kind of learn that Baron is. Um, it kind of feels like Robin Hood to me. Um, yeah, he's like the solitary outlaw after his father and their men are killed. And he's just kind of a badass holding down this one man guerrilla war against <laughs> uh, like this army that Morgoth has sent Sauron to go after him. Yeah, my favorite line in this whole section where it's kind of describing like how much the orcs feared him and and how there was like a bounty out on his name, but no one even tried to like collect that bounty because they were terrified of him. And it was no less than the bounty on the head of Fingon. Yeah, who which was is, the high king after right, he often died. It's pretty wild. But I love this line that says that. From that time forth, he ate no flesh, nor slew any living thing that was not in the service of Morgoth. Which, we were talking about this, and, and maybe this is just saying, like, oh yeah, he's a vegetarian and he kills orcs. But I like to think of it as that he he eats meat, but it's only of fell beasts and orcs. Yeah, and, Balrogs. and there's a wide spectrum there from, like, a, a good vegan boy and someone who, like, cannibalizes, like, orcs. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I like the idea that... He eats orcs, or at least the, that's the story that orcs tell each other. Well, like, beware Baron of the woods. And like, that's sort of, like, the intensity with which they fear him, is if yeah. he's going to, like, eat you. <laughs> well, yeah, and they basically hint that they had to get Sauron to bring an army of werewolves against him because the orcs wouldn't do the yeah. job. Um, so, yeah. And, I mean, he's a strong boy. I doubt he's getting complete proteins by just eating, like, leaves on the trail, so, yeah. yeah. But Baron eventually flees south and uh, encounters the elf maid, Luthien, and falls in love with her. Luthien's father, Thingol, says, well, if you want my daughter, you're going to have to bring me a Silmaril from Morgoth's crown. Which is, you know, he's saying this in jest as right. a way to just, like, get out of my hair. You can't have my daughter. This yeah. is impossible. Go try to do it, but I hope you die. <laughs> Baron goes to Felagund to redeem his oath to Baron's father, and... Um, they're captured by Sauron. Felagun dies. Felagun sacrifices himself for Baron, but Luthien rescues him. With the help of Huon. Huon, the best uh, doggo that ever lived. He's the good boy. He is quite a good boy. And then they go forth to Angband, and uh, Luthien lulls everyone to sleep in Morgoth's court, while Baron uh, cuts... The Silmaril from Morgoth's crown while he sleeps, and as they escape, the wolf guard of Angband bites off Baron's hand with the Silmaril and goes crazy because of the <laughs> yeah. uh, holy fire within like his demonic body. Baron and Luthien make their way back to Thingol, uh, who is now totally changed his mind about Baron, and he <laughs> yeah. teams up with his future son-in-law to go on this wolf hunt and reclaim the Silmaril together. Um, which they do, but Baron and Huan die, uh, killed by the wolf. But Baron achieves the quest, and the Silmaril is given back to Thingol. Um, but Luthien, uh, her spirit leaves her, and she goes to the halls of Mandos 
and pleads to Mandos for Baron's life. And Mandos is so moved that he um, actually talks to Manway about, like, well, what can we do about this? Because, you know, I don't have control over, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, the decrees on the lives of elves and men. And they basically decide um, to give Luthien a choice. Either she can come to Valinor and just, like, party it up and forget about Baron and, and just be in bliss with the Valar. Um, or she can return to Middle-earth um, with Baron in a second life, but this life will definitely be mortal. Yeah, and she chooses the latter. Yeah. Um, so they both go back to Middle-earth and are re-embodied and live this happily ever after life, and they eventually die. Mm-hmm. They'll pop back into the story briefly, but... It seems like they just had, until their deaths, a pretty peaceful life. And um, lived kind of that classic fairy tale, happily ever after, which we don't get a lot of characters in the film, really, and getting that ending. No, Um, definitely not. Um, But they they certainly went through it before they they mm -hmm. achieved that. Okay. So, yeah, it's it's basically the story of these two lovers triumphing, taking back a Silmaril where armies of the Noldor and the Sons of Feanor have failed. And that really just ties into Tolkien's overall themes of... uh, the seemingly weak moving the wheels of the world when the wise and the powerful falter. Okay. So what's your favorite part of this story? I love how prominently Sauron is featured in these stories, given that he is the later Lord of the Rings and the antagonist fills the same role of Morgoth as the ultimate dark Lord of Middle-earth later. But now we're kind of just seeing him as this henchman, almost yeah and i kind of like him more as that it's really interesting i mean we were talking about how we get to see so much more of morgoth as the villain um in the context of the silmarillion than we get to see of sauron in the lord of the rings so we we know more about morgoth as the big bad we know like Mm -hmm. where he came from and why he is the way he is and i mean he comes forth and fights uh fingolf and so we have this like very present Right. Um, presence. Yeah, ex- exactly. Um, but we definitely get a closer look at Sauron here. Um, and he's yeah. a pretty uh, he's a pretty good bad guy. <laughs> yeah, he comes forth in the Battle of Sudden Flame as a uh, captain in this army. And I love this description here. Sauron must become now a sorcerer of dreadful power, master of shadows and of phantoms, foul in wisdom cruel in strength, misshaping what he touched, twisting what he ruled, lord of werewolves, his dominion was torment. Love it. I mean, I know I'm not supposed to, like, love all of these bad, evil characters, because Tolkien's not writing these guys as as gray characters, but, like, but I know you. If I'm not supposed to thirst over these characters, why are they written so sexy? I don't have an answer for you. Just gotta love a character with conviction. I think this is a you issue. Yeah, it is a me issue. Um, but, you know, I, I just think he's super ghosty. Um, he, yeah, he controls werewolves and phantoms. And even werewolves in this world are evil spirits that have been trapped in wolf bodies. Right. So, you know, there's a, a tad bit of uh, necromancy there, too. <laughs> yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know if these are undead spirits or just other evil lesser Ainur. Right. Well, we get more of this horrific aspect, very Dracula aspect of the character of Sauron at the beginning of the tale of Baron and Luthien when Gorlum betrays Baron and his his family. 
because he's shown a phantom version of his his wife who he has been missing and trying to track down and it just turns out that she's dead and he gets killed for it yeah and he's like i'll betray my people if like you just let me go be free with my wife yeah everyone's like that's all all right right and then he's like well your wife's dead so um (laughs) thanks uh bye and then he was cruelly put to death. Yeah. Um, um, and his... Which is said later, I think, about some of Felagun's companions when they're eaten by a werewolf, maybe? Mm. So, like, I think, like, cruelly put to death is, like, fed to Sauron's wolves. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and then he comes to Baron in a ghosty, ghosty dream, very much like Ajax speaking from the pits of Tartarus. To about, Odysseus. Yeah, to Odysseus just to to warn him. So this is such a magical story and and very uh, mystical. And I would say the great tales more than any other things in the legendarium are the most obviously inspired by other myths and fairy tales. We get a little bit of like Rapunzel with Luthien escaping from uh, Thingol's imprisonment. We have Karkaroth uh, as this canine guardian of hell like Cerberus. Mm -hmm. I think Tolkien said he was really inspired by the Greek myth of Orpheus and yeah. like descending into the underworld for someone you love. Yeah, and I also love the earlier version of the fight between Sauron and Huon when Sauron was Tevildo, the prince of cats. <laughs> and this is kind of the mythological explanation for why dogs and cats don't like each other. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's a lot of like fun kind of uh, little things here and there. It's, it's very magical. Yeah, speaking of Luthien, she is a bad bitch. Not just a pretty face. Or rather, not just the prettiest face. She is, you know... The prettiest face of all the children of Elizabeth. Yeah, she's, like, known as that. It's not just the Mm -hmm. opinion of some, like, hands down, empirically... Everyone's in agreement. Everyone's in agreement. She was the most beautiful child of Elizabeth. Yeah, and I'd say, like, next to Eowyn, I mean, Luthien is his best female character. Yeah, I mean, she basically, you know, her first reaction is like, but daddy, I love him. And then he puts her up into a big house where she can't get out of. And uh, she's like, fuck that. I'm just going to grow my hair real long. (laughs) And uh, makes a magic coat out of hair. I don't know. She's just like really cool. Yeah. And I love for how inspired this is by other fairy tales and stuff, how it kind of subverts the genre with the princess rescuing the warrior. As opposed to, you know, the warrior having to go rescue the princess. Yeah, um, we're sort of set up to believe that Baron is the romantic hero, but uh, he's not. <laughs> Luthien is, but even more so Huan. <laughs> yeah, and I, I love Huan too. I love this idea of just this giant magic dog from the land of the gods. He can only speak three times before he dies. He's eternally faithful. He can only be slain by the greatest wolf that has ever walked the world. Before that happens, though, he kills a lot of werewolves. Mm -hmm. And nearly kills Sauron in the form of a werewolf. Which, I I just love that whole scene. And, again, with Sauron, I know he's not in the Silmarillion a lot. He's only in it this little bit, and then he's defeated. (laughs) So it's not like a glamorous entrance for Sauron, but I do like how close up we see him and see his powers at work, like his shape-shifting, his necromancy. But... Huan, man, just like pins him down by the throat and makes one of the most powerful of all the Maiar yield. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Since Huan is like super loyal, he actually has to break his loyalty. Originally in the the story, he is uh, faithful to Kelegorm. Mm -hmm, Until he kidnaps Luthien and tries to (laughs) 
marry her against her will and... And kill her and kill Baron. After that happens, uh, Huan just totally breaks his his relationship with Kelligorm and stays true to Baron and Luthien. Yeah, because just like Baron, the first time he sees Luthien, uh, he's just enamored with her. Yeah. And like... You're my master now. Yeah, they, um, yeah. It's really. I think it's super cute. Like the idea yeah. of this giant dog, like coming across this beautiful elf in the woods, and uh, they just become besties. Yeah, exactly. And he lets her ride him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's really cute. Yeah, and another thing I think is really great is a lot of this story has been about the Noldor, and Thingol and the Sindar have popped in and out, and just recently men have come into the story, but. The protagonists of the story are a Sindar princess and a mortal. Yeah. Um, now getting involved into this wider story of the Noldor right. and their exile. So while this is a happy tale right now, it is going to kick off a chain of events that will lead to some more tragedy. Yeah. Because it wouldn't be the Silmarillion without just tons of tragedy. As we see when Baron first goes to get the help of Felagund, Anything that involves the Silmarils immediately gets the attention of the Sons of Feanor. And Kelgorm and Carufin get really dramatic about it all and, you know, restate their oath and are basically ready to launch a coup against Felagund. Yeah, I'd say of all the brothers of the Sons of Feanor, Kelgorm and Carufin are the most... I think they inher- what they inherited of their father was the intense desire to reclaim the Silmarils. Yeah. Mithras and Maglor are kind of more willing to hang back and bide their time until it's reasonable to kind of try to fulfill the oath. These guys are like, no, like, no one will get in our way. We will lay all the elf kingdoms low in order to get what we want. Yeah. Um, They kind of have that narrow track mind that Feanor had. Um, But, you know, they're scheming, too. You know, they're trying to unite Thingol to their realm, too, by, like, holding uh, his daughter as a hostage bride. Consort, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're they're pretty shitty in this whole story, Uh, just, like, smiling wickedly and... and Yeah. I think what I talk about a lot on this podcast is, like, what characters I think are hot. Um, Character who doesn't sound very hot when he shows up is... Baron. By the time he like comes across Luthien, he's he's not old at all, but he looks old because of all of the like horrors he's seen on yeah. his path. So he's not your typical like handsome knight, like romantic lead in these stories. He's aged before his time and um you know, she's this beautiful, immortal, eternally youthful elf princess, and he's just like <laughs> A grubby Hey there. <laughs> a grubby dude who shows up in the woods and starts catcalling this girl. Yeah, exactly. And like it's just like, yeah, I don't know, putting it into perspective of like like a, a modern context, it's not someone I would I would be like, Oh yeah, I totally fell in love with the guy in the woods who just started like yelling words at me. <laughs> but I do like that for like the first marriage of mortal and immortal, like when she first meets him he's already showing the signs of mortality. Yeah. So it's like she knows like what he is, what right. he's about, and what she's getting into from the beginning of the story. Totally. I think as much as Tolkien doesn't write a ton of female characters, the female characters he does write are pretty cool. Luthien being one of them, I mean, like, hands down, she's the reason any of their quest succeeds, you know? Like, without her, it just wouldn't have ever happened. Um, And, like, when she first finds Baron imprisoned by Sauron, he's, like, 
so distraught over Felgun's death, which I don't, I don't want to blow over it. Yeah, Felgun's death sucks for everyone. Uh, Felgun's a really good guy. But he's so distraught that she actually thinks that he himself is dead. Uh, and she falls into a dark forgetfulness as she, like, lays over his body. And then he kind of wakes up and um, is like, oh, no, I'm, I'm alive. And it's like a little bit of a Romeo and Juliet vibes yeah. with that moment. We're running a little short on time, but I do want to talk about one thing before we end this, which is Felagun, by the way. Like you said, we don't want to blow past that. He is probably one of my favorite elves of the whole story. Yeah. And speaking of all these MVPs of the story, whether it's Luthien or Huan, I don't want to leave out Finrod. Because, yeah, all he ever did was, like, get saved by Baron's dad and swear an oath to him. Now here comes, like, his love-struck son being like, I come to redeem your oath. <laughs> and instantly gets Felagun killed. And I don't know, I just love that he, being of the House of Finarfin, is kind of more wise than the rest of his family, and he's uh, seems to be on good terms with even some of the sons of Feanor, even though they tried to kill his kin. He's close with, like, Turgon, and um, he played a big role in uh, brokering deals between Thingol and, and the Noldor as they came back to Beleriand, and also when men came into Beleriand, he was brokering alliances between them and the elf lords and that's pretty huge because the elves without the help of men are not going to be able to defeat Morgoth yeah so he plays a really crucial role here just basically being friends with everybody and being this beloved nice guy and his friendship with Beor the old um is very tender and sweet the way he yeah. played music for him and then stayed with him through his old age and witnessed firsthand the mortality and I just get this really, like, soft, real nice guy image of Felagun that you kind of yeah. can't hate the guy. And then he has one of the most feral, badass, epic deaths of anyone in the Silmarillion. Yeah. He wrestles a werewolf with and kills him with his bare hands and teeth. Essentially rips out a werewolf's throat with his teeth. Yeah, he's pretty cool. Um, and I just love that he's, like, the nicest elf. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's how he dies. And also dies sacrificing himself for Baron. Right. And I'm just a sucker for stories where an immortal sacrifices themselves for a mortal. Mm. And one note that I do think is really great about this, though, is they say, um, you know, he's going to the, his spirit is now going to the halls of Mandos. And then it says, and now Finrod walks beneath the trees of Eldemar with Finarfin, his father, mm -hmm. which indicates that like a lot of elves um, that die in Middle-earth, they can be uh, re-embodied and come yeah. back to life. Because elves are truly immortal. As long as the world lasts, their spirit will last. Whereas men leave the world. Right. And right. so he's hinted to be kind of one of the first elves to be re-embodied and come back. Because they go to the Halls of Mandos for however much time it takes to kind of atone for their sins. And it's said that Feanor would be there until the end of the world. Because his sins were so large that right. they caused so much yeah. grief in the world. But Finrod did all these great things. He redeemed his oath to bury here, and he truly kind of stayed out of the worst parts. He didn't participate in the kinslaying. His worst sin was really that he just wanted to go rule his own kingdom, but he was willing to relinquish that. Oh, immediately. Oath. And so, yeah, he was pretty instantly like. All right, you can come back now. You don't. He doesn't have to spend a lot of time in Mandos. No, He's yeah. like atoned for his sins in his time in Middle Earth. Right, exactly. Um, so I don't know. I always really like that fact about him. Lots of good boys in this story of Baron and Luthien. <laughs> yeah. 
Don't get too attached. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, because our next story is kind of more about a, a bad boy. Yeah, well, Tolkien goes from, like, the uh, happiest and most blissful story into the most tragic of this epic tragedy. It's a tragedy within a tragedy. Perfect. Okay, so next episode, which hopefully will be released close to the same time as this one, uh, is going to be about... The Battle of Unnumbered Tears and the Tale of Turin. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and you can also follow us on Twitter at HalfAsWellPod. Or you can check us out online at HalfAsWellPodcast.com, where we have a bunch of neat things like our reading schedule. I'm Sage. And I'm William. And this is Half Half As as well. Well.